You're listening to the Bethel Baptist Podcast. This recording is from our adult Sunday school class. Today's lesson is taught by Keith Wilkinson. All right, so back to the book of James. We're going to be in um, chapter 1, really looking at verses 13 to 18. And it's been a couple of weeks since we've been together, so we're getting back into the first part of James, uh, verses 1 to 12, was talking about trials, and here in verses 13 to 18, we're talking about temptation. And we talked about uh, how we're moving in or transitioning into that last time we met. Before we get into that, I would encourage people, I know we spent uh, some time going through this little calendar thing that I mentioned. Uh, Many of you had that, you were given that, and kind of we kind of we walked through the uh, uh the put on uh, put off put on aspect of of what's in this little calendar and i had given everybody an assignment to pick out one thing and to work on that one thing i trust that you have been doing that uh, if you kind of set that aside on a shelf and it's collecting dust i would encourage you to blow the dust off of it and get back to working on that that one thing, if you're uh, not familiar with that and you would like a copy, let me know and I can get you a copy of that. But I encourage you to keep working on that because as you develop the plan for the put off, put on, uh, that can change over time. Or as you work on one particular sin and you feel like that is uh, pretty much uh, resolved or under control, then you can move on to some other sin that maybe you're struggling with or having difficulty with. So. Just an encouragement to get back to that or not to let that just sit around. You want to continue to be uh, diligent and working on those things, and that's a little tool to help you uh, do that. All right, so let's take a look at James uh, chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 13 to 18. I'll read those, and then we'll do a slight review of what we talked about last time and then try to move forward from that point. So James chapter 1, starting in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. And so the handout that you have today is the same handout that we had last time. And I really started out last time by uh, drawing attention to what I think is the the key in these verses, and that's verse 16. Do not be deceived. Um, James is telling us here that that's the vital aspect that he wants the, the audience to understand. He does not want them to be deceived. And I made a reference back to 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Um, we, we're not going to go there, but... That's uh, where Paul is telling his audience, don't be deceived about the uh, sinful lifestyles that people leave and the, the thought that people can get away with those sinful lifestyles. You can live that way and there's really no repercussion for living that way or there's no repercussion for 
being involved in those sins. And he's telling them that is not true. Don't be deceived. And he goes on and lists all these different sin issues there. And he says, these people will not inherit the kingdom of God. These people are not going to heaven. Don't be deceived in thinking that somehow they are going to go to heaven. They're not. Um, and then he makes that, uh, he says that really in verses uh, 9 and 10 in 1 Corinthians 6. Then verse 11 is the important one. And they're all important, but really he drives it home that um, uh, for the person who is saved, they are no longer that way. They're not identified by their ungodly behavior. And they're not identified by their ungodly behavior because they've been changed, right? They've been changed through Jesus Christ, which is what we, uh, Pastor Kirk, talked about uh, this morning. And so that really is the, the same type of thing that James is getting at here. He doesn't want the audience to be deceived. What does he not want them to be deceived about? And I mentioned last time that the three things that I, I take away out of these passages, I think are clear in these passages. He does not want them to be deceived about temptation, what temptation actually is. He does not want you to be deceived about who you actually are. Um, again, many times we have a very high opinion of ourselves and, and the life we're living. and. Uh, um, it just results in a bad situation for us. So he doesn't want us to be deceived about who we truly are, and he does not want us to be deceived about who God truly is. Those three things are wrapped up in here. Don't be deceived about temptation. Don't be deceived about who you are, and don't be deceived about who God is. And it's very important that we understand that probably the uh, the last one may be the most important. We We need to rightly understand who God is. Very important that we understand who God is, who He truly is. Um, we, we briefly talked about the reality talk, talks uh, here in um, uh, the early verses, that uh, or verse 13 there, let no one say when he is tempted. It's not a matter of if, it's when. We are going to be tempted. That's reality. Uh, and again, that just goes back to what we looked at in Genesis 3 uh, with regard to Adam and Eve. And then looking in Matthew uh, chapter 4, Jesus being tempted, that's a reality. Uh, uh, Jesus was not immune from temptation. We're not immune from temptation. It's going to happen. And so we need to think about those things. Just like trials, trials are going to happen. It's not a, a matter of if, it's when they're going to happen. And so we have to be uh, careful about that. I mentioned that there are only three, uh, uh, really three sins in the, in the world, that's, that's all there are. There's many sins that fall uh, uh, under those three categories. We have the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And um, those are the only three. Now, every sin that we know of falls into one of those three. Um, so we, um, we can say whatever it might be. The, the sin of anger certainly could be tied to uh, pride. Um, many times that's exactly what it's tried to, uh, tied to, right? We think of Jonah. Uh, Jonah was mad. He got angry because it was not things were not going his way. He had a better plan than God had, and he, he let God know that, <laughs> All right? Uh, he, he was pretty vocal about that aspect of it. So we want to be careful uh, about that. Those, so, so we understand 
understand temptation, those are the three ways that we're tempted. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And again, that's exactly how Eve was tempted. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And so when we hear people say, well, you don't understand, today they're, uh, we're, we're, we're exposed to so many new things. Uh, there's nothing new. It may look a little different in the sense of it being kind of repackaged, but it's the same temptation. And so we need to be mindful of that. So again, don't be deceived about temptation, who you are and who God is. So let's take a little bit more of an understanding of temptation. Um, and that's where I, I had gone through the first John 2:16 for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. That's it. There's nothing else. Yeah, Gary. Yeah, so, well, we're going to get to that. So if you hang on a little bit. Yeah, we're going to get there with regard to uh, uh, the death aspect of it. Uh, I'll, maybe I'll just say this up front. So some, some people will take that as um, meaning uh, we lose our salvation. Uh, it's not talking about that. Some people talk, again, they would talk about the spiritual death aspect of that, which would be the salvific aspect of it. And uh, that's not what he's talking about. Um, you know, he's talking about actual physical death there. And so, again, we're, we'll, we'll touch on that a little bit. If I, if I don't get to it by the end, get my attention, I'll make sure I come back to it. But, yeah, that's uh, kind of in a short synopsis. That's what he is, he is getting at. And so... That's what we want to think about when we think about temptation in the sense, again, the, those three things, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Um, one of the things that James is telling us up front here in these verses when he says, uh, let no one say, uh, right there in verse 13, let no one say um, that, or the, the continuation of that is, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. The idea of the let no one say there, I touched briefly on, briefly on this last time, uh, no one, a Christian should never say that. A Christian really should never think that, that somehow this temptation is being brought to me uh, from God. And, and uh, really it's a blasphemous thing. It, it is really a misunderstanding of God's character, which is, kind of mixed in with what we're going to talk about later on. But with regard to temptation, we understand that God is not, not the one who is uh, bringing that. Um, assigning blame for temptation goes all the way back to the garden. That's what we need to understand about temptation. And James wants them to understand that nothing has changed. That's where this whole thing with temptation started, and that's where it still exists. It exi exists with mankind. It's wrong to think that God was responsible for the temptation in the garden, and it's wrong to think that God is responsible for the temptation uh, in our life, in this day and age. And again, the, the emphasis there, it's very emphatic that uh, we should not let that be a thought in our mind. Uh, certainly, we should never say that. Uh, and so for us, uh, the important issue is who is the one responsible responsible for being enticed or for us being put to the test. James is crystal clear. It is not God. It is not God, right? And so, again, we need to have the proper understanding of God 
of the nature of God and then be able to rightly assign uh, temptation. Why is it wrong to assign temptation to God? He's holy, right? We could think about Leviticus, Leviticus 19.2. Say to all the congregation, the sons of Israel, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Right? Peter repeats that uh, in the New Testament. Uh, God is holy. We, we mentioned that a little bit, I think, last time uh, with uh, the First John 1.5 passage. There's no darkness in him at all. Uh, the, the, and I touched on that in my sermon last week in the sense that um, this thought that there could be any kind of evil or darkness in God it is impossible. That little phrase in 1 John 1.5 where it says, um, there is no sin in him uh, at all, no darkness in him at all, uh, has the idea of no how, no way. It can't happen. It is an impossibility. And so that's something we, again, we need to understand with regard to who God is. He is holy. He's righteous. He's just. What's a more practical, yeah, what's a more practical reason we should not ascribe temptation to God? Gary, yeah. Yeah, so kind of flushing that out a little bit more. This is what Gary's getting at. Uh, he's, I'm just saying it differently than what he just said. In the sense that God is asking us to be obedient, right? So think about in the garden. He tells Adam and Eve, you can eat of any, any tree except that one, right? You can eat of the fruit of any tree except that one. That's the call for obedience. And so this idea that now he would... Um, provide the temptation or, or be tempting them to disobey him is really silly, right? Why would he be telling them to obey, but then uh, almost in a sense telling them to disobey? Uh, it doesn't really make any sense, right? Uh, why would you tell somebody to obey and then turn around and tell them to disobey or, or influence them to disobey? Uh, that doesn't go together. Well, what's the other reason we would not want to ascribe temptation to God? Okay, so, yeah, he doesn't desire evil for us. I would agree with that. Um, the, we'd have to talk about the Jeremiah 29, 11 passage a little bit. Um, but, uh, yeah, he does not desire bad for us. He does not desire evil for us. But there's one other big thing, Ed. Well, resistance of God is Okay. If God is tempting us, then we have nothing to do with it. Yeah, yeah. If God is placing this evil in front of us and almost moving in us, uh, moving us in that direction, then He would be the one that would be to blame. I would agree with that. Uh, there's one other thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. You would be questioning God's truthfulness, right? The, the various places where He desires our good, uh, those things would not be true anymore, right? Um, there's one other, maybe bigger one. Um, I know it's a vague question, but I don't want to give away the answer. Well, I'll, I'll give you a hint. Let's go back to Genesis 3. Um, what's happening there, or what would be the problem with uh, temptation being assigned to God? Uh, what did you say? Satan. Yeah, what's the deal with Satan? What about him? He's, he's the deceiver. He's the one that provides temptation. And so if God provides temptation, 
then him and Satan are the same. Uh, that cannot be. Correct. There would be no redemption. I mean, the promise kind of going back um, to what Greg said, the promises are just not there. So how would we know that we're truly redeemed? He says we're redeemed, but do we really know that we're redeemed? Uh, again, the truthfulness would be called into question. But Satan is the one who is the tempter. Uh, and scripture is clear on that. Certainly we see that play out in Genesis 3. So if temptation is now ascribed to God as well, uh, he's no different than Satan. And that cannot be, right? That, that just cannot be. So we have, to, we have to be careful there. The evil that's talked about here in verse 13 um, includes our thoughts, our intentions, and our actions. And we're, we're going to flesh that out here in a little bit uh, as well. Um, uh, but uh, two things, you know, God cannot uh, be tempted and God cannot tempt. And, and really that would be another aspect of him being the tempter, kind of as Gary mentioned, there's this indication there that there's something he's lacking or something he is desiring. It would almost be that he would be desiring us to fail. And that, that is wicked, right? Well, there's just no two ways about it. So that's where we would have to be very careful in our assessment. So that's what we're talking about when we talk about really this understanding of temptation. And as the verse continues to, uh, the verses continue to fl flush out there, um, the, the responsibility of temptation falls squarely on us, right? We, uh, uh, the temptation with regard to Eve fell squarely on her. Uh, she did not resist uh, the temptation that came from the devil. Uh, there was something there that she desired, and then that became sinful when she acted on it. Right? And we see in Matthew 4, there is temptation that is uh, provided through the devil to Jesus, but he does not act on it. Right? There, there's no question in, uh, in Matthew 4 that Jesus is hungry, but he does not give in, he does not act on the, that desire, the, the desire to eat. Right? That desire in and of itself, after uh, going 40 days without food, the desire to eat is a natural desire. But how do we fulfill that desire? Are we going to fulfill that desire by disobeying God? Uh, the answer there is clearly no. Uh, we're, not going to, uh, we're not going to do that. So kind of in conjunction with this understanding that it's not God who tempts us is the second part of it, which is understanding who we are, or as I put up there, understanding, uh, I'll put it up there, understanding who you are. <laughs> you want to understand yourself. I want to understand myself. You want to understand yourself. And uh, so here James tells us how this comes about. And he tells us that in verses 14 and 15. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Notice there in verse 14, but each one is tempted when he is carried away by his own lust. It's nobody else. You know, again, I think somebody had commented last time about um, uh, the devil made me do it. <laughs> uh, the devil can't make you do anything, right? That's important to understand. If we're a believer, 
then we have been rescued from the, the power of sin, the penalty of sin, and one day from the presence of sin. Sin still lingers because we're in this body of flesh. But uh, sin has no power over us anymore. Uh, for people who say, well, I just can't resist the temptation. Uh, well, let me, I'm not going to, yeah. Why, let me ask the question, why is that a bad statement or a, why is that a horrific statement? I just can't resist the temptation. They're not relying on God. Uh, flush it out a little bit more. Who Who is that an indictment on? The Holy Spirit. It's an indictment on the Holy Spirit. Because it's saying that, yes, the Holy Spirit dwells within me, but the Holy Spirit is not powerful enough to move me along without me giving in to these temptations. Uh, I'm redeemed, uh, but I just can't help myself, right? Which would also be contrary to what we see in 1 Corinthians 10.13. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man, right? And it talks there about how God has provided you with, in any of those temptations, God provides you with a way of escape, right? It's whether or not we take that way that God has provided. Um, again, the power is there to do that. The question is whether we obey and resist the temptation or we give in to uh, the temptation. So part of this uh, understanding of who we are is just this understanding that we are carried away and enticed by our own lust. It's our problem. It's not somebody else's problem. It's our own problem. And the language there is, is very interesting uh, when he says there, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. So the carried away, enticed, and lust. Now, carried away is really a kind of a hunting, and a, a hunting or a fishing term, right? Lured away, uh, lured away from the, the cover of safety. Uh, there, there can be a, a sense there that it's somebody being dragged away, uh, and that would be if the, uh, the desire was uh, uh, strong enough. Uh, it's so strong that you're dragged away uh, by what's going on there. Uh, that really is an, more of an inner concept, uh, something that is a very strong desire that you want uh, you're currently in a safe position, but you're willing to now expose yourself outside that safety because of the desire you have for this particular thing. Again, you think about it in the sense of a hunting, uh, hunting term. Uh, there's all kinds of animals that know there's safety in certain places, um, but their desire for something, could be food, um, now is so strong that they leave that area of safety to go get this thing that they strongly desire. And now they've taken themselves outside of safety. And so that's the idea that's there. Um, the enticed word there, it, it has to do with uh, being allured or beguiled, uh, kind of as with bait. So again, that's uh, somewhat of a, uh, a fishing term. Uh, that really is the outer concept. That's, a, uh, that's attached to the thing you're going after. Uh, the desire is the inner thing, right? Uh, the, the beguiling is the thing you're going after. And so those two things work together to move us, uh, again, when we're tempted, 
That's what's going on in us. <laughs> we, we want this thing, and this inner desire is moving us to that thing. Right? And so that's what we have to really be careful of when we think about those things. Again, think about somebody who is, is hungry. Um, God knows that we get hungry. We can't go without food. And so there's nothing wrong with wanting to go have a meal. But now if I want to have a meal so badly that I think that that meal is going to satisfy me, and every day I go to the, the buffet and I eat and eat and eat until I can't walk out of the place, right? That's gluttony. I've now let that control me. I've let that take me out from underneath a, a safe, a godly place to a place that is not good. It's worshiping that, that food, thinking that somehow that is now going to save me or satisfy me. Uh, lust, the term lust that's used there has to do with uh, uh, the inward passion. The, 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 the phrase is inward passion of concupiscence. Uh, it's a desire that attaches itself to something. And so it's just this progression, right? So that's what's happening there. Again, think about Eve's desire for, for the forbidden fruit. She was so enamored with the thought of what this could bring that finally uh, her desire is attached to that fruit. That is the thing I have to have because it brings with it the promise of all these other things uh, or supposed promise of all these other things. And so that's where we have to be careful. And that can happen in a number of, of things. You know, people, when they read something like that, they always try to attach it to sexual temptation. Uh, it's not just sexual temptation. It's a number of things. Uh, again, you think about, um, well, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, I've said this one before, and, and I'll continue to use this as an example. I mean, that that can apply to someone who wants to go to seminary. They, they think that God has called them there and that has now become a desire of theirs and that desire is so, uh, so bad that they will do anything to get it, uh, which could mean um, neglecting their, their spouse and their, their children to, to get that degree. Uh, that's the same kind of thing that's talked about here. That's what James is getting at. So, Again, that's what he is mentioning with regard to how this all comes about. And verse 15, then, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. And certainly, uh, uh, James does not want his, um, his audience to be uh, fooled by any of this. And so we, we have to make sure that we understand this in our own hearts, in our own minds, uh, what, what is really going on. And again, I want to emphasize in verse 14 where it said there, he and his, uh, that is our responsibility. James is making that uh, clear that it's a personal issue. It's not, um, um, it's not somebody, else's, um, somebody else's problem, right? Uh, it, it can't be somebody else's problem because, again, then we're not responsible for... Um, uh, the, the lust or the sin, right? The, the end product of it. So when we think about it, temptation comes about not by that which is from without, but from that which is from within. 
right? Temptation does not come from that which is without. It comes from that which is within. And we know that from Matthew 12, 34. For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. It's telling us clearly that sin comes from within. We see that in Matthew 15, verses 18 and 19. But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. Right? But nobody's making us do that. That's the desire of our own heart. So it's very important uh, that we, we grasp that because we can never say that it's our circumstances that result in sin. Where would we go in the Bible to prove that our circumstances result, in, uh, that th this idea that circumstances result in sin, where would we go in the Bible to refute that? Job? Uh, nah, well, maybe. <laughs> There's a really good place to go. There's the defin Let me say this. Where's the definitive place to go in the Bible to show that our circumstances are not responsible for our sin? Uh, there's a better place. I'm not disagreeing. There's a better place. Greg? Better place. <laughs> there's a better place. There's a better place. <laughs> Genesis 3. Why is Genesis 3 the definitive place to go in the Bible to show that our circumstances are not responsible for our sin? <laughs> Bingo. They lived in a perfect place. There was no sin. They had perfect communion with God. They were without sin. And yet they still sinned. So this idea that, uh, well, the environment I live in or the whatever, um, we just cannot use that to say that that's why we sin. Because the environment there with Adam and Eve was perfect, and they still chose to sin. Right? And so, again, that just shows that those things come from uh, within. Um, and certainly, you know, again, the idea of blaming our surroundings for our sin is just kind of a, a goofy thing, given the circumstances of of the uh, uh, the surroundings for Adam and Eve. Right? Um, it was the perfect place. Uh, some may not want to admit it, but she had the perfect husband at that point. <laughs> he had the perfect wife. Right? Uh, obviously, the perfect God. Yeah, uh, Libby. Yeah, exactly. That's great, great comment. Yep. Yeah, that's why it's so important for us to um, to really guard ourselves when it co comes to lust, uh, to lust and sin. That's why um, um, you know, these these are just a few verses uh, that I'll I'll go over. I don't know if I have these on here or not. Tell you the truth. Uh, uh, yeah, I do. Proverbs four twenty three. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. This call for us to watch over our heart. What's going in there? What are we putting in our heart? Well, that's very important. Uh, can you think about uh, junk in, junk out? 
know, the old uh, computer programming thing. Uh, if we're putting bad things into our heart, uh, bad things are going to come out of our heart. Uh, the Jeremiah 17:9, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Again, this uh, uh, a very direct passage that talks about the wickedness of, of the heart. And we've got to be very careful with that. Uh, the three verses that I really love with regard to protecting our heart, when we think about just understanding who we are. Uh, I, I love these three verses. Uh, how can a young, this is Psalm 119, verses 9 to 11. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. This direct correlation in these verses, the direct correlation between the word of God and keeping us from sin. Right? Those would be three verses I would encourage all people to memorize, uh, to, to think about and meditate on, because again, that direct correlation between the Word of God and guarding over or protecting our hearts. And we certainly know that, right? We know that from Matthew 4 with Jesus' response in the wilderness, right? He uses the Word of God to refute the temptation that's thrown at him by Satan. And we should do the same. I think Pastor Kirk mentioned that a few weeks ago. Um, and so, yeah, it's just a very important aspect as we think about that. So kind of all those verses to uh, to say this, that we need to know our own lust. I did mention this last week. Somebody got ahead of, uh, ahead of the, the game a little bit. I mentioned this last time when I talked about the difference between uh, apple pie and lemon meringue pie. Um, we need to know what uh, what tempts us, right? And I mentioned that. They put 100 apple pies in here uh, made by uh, Marlene. And I'll walk out the door with not even batting an eye. You put one lemon meringue pie in here that's made by Marlene, and I'm going to have a hard time. <laughs> There's a struggle, okay? So that, that varies by person, right? Uh, something that tempts you, I could care less about and vice versa, right? And so that's where we need to know, uh, we really need to know ourselves. Uh, and uh, again, temptation comes about um, from within, uh, not from without. Um, MacArthur says it this way, the problem is not the tempter from without, but from the traitor within. Uh, again, he you know, it's really got a zing to it when we think about who we are, uh, evaluating who we are. Um, and again, thinking that God causes sin holds the thought that God takes pleasure in the death of man, right? Because that's what, that's what sin resulted in, is the death of man. So if God takes pleasure in tempting us to sin, that means he also takes pleasure in our death. And that, that is not true, right, Gary? Yeah, so the thing I was pressing Gary on there, and, and he said it, is really the one key component of knowing God's word is the application of God's word. And so uh, we, we, we probably all know people that can recite to us all kinds of verses, but they never really apply the word of God. And if you never apply the word of God, then my argument would be that you don't really know the word of God. 
because the word of God is a call to apply the word of God, right? Um, it's telling us to do that. And so, uh, yeah, if we don't if we don't ever apply the word of God, put it into practice, I don't care if you've memorized the whole Bible. It really means nothing to me at all. So that's Joe. Yeah, if you, I mean, that's part of if you love me, you will keep my commandments. I mean, how do you keep the commandments without actively applying the Word of God? I mean, you just, you can't. And so those two things go hand in hand. Um, and so we have to be careful uh, in, in that aspect or when we think about, uh, even as we, uh, looking over here at Caleb with the, the boys, right? Even as we teach our young children uh, Bible verses, it's good to teach them Bible verses, but are we teaching them the application of those Bible verses, right? Uh, so if we teach kids to memorize Bible verses and never really tell them what that verse is about, what does that verse mean? And then what's the expectation on your life from that verse? We need to do that. We need to do that. Memorizing Bible verses are good, but memorizing them apart from the understanding and application is really disastrous. And so we need to make sure that we are mindful of those things. Um, um, so that, again, that Jeremiah, talking about these things that happen uh, within us, uh, guarding what we put in our heart, all those things. You know, we think about Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is deceitful and desperately sick. Uh, it, it's good that, uh, um, uh, you know, we think about people or understanding our own lives. Uh, can maybe think about it in this way. The good that people do needs to be looked at as a display of one's inherent goodness, not, not as a display of one's inherent goodness, but rather as a display of God's common grace and his sovereign restraint of evil. So many people will say, well, so-and-so does good. Uh, you know, they have this worldly idea of what is good. Um, but that's just a display of God's common grace. It's not really anything that's in them. There's no good in them at all. At all, Bill Gates could give $100 million to whatever school district he wants to, um, but as an unredeemed person, there is no good in that at all. That's just something that's done for an earthly uh, pleasure, right? It's not tied to the goodness of God at all, and so we have to be mindful um, of those things, okay? Um, somebody else have a question? Okay. Uh, so really we think about um, uh, those things. Again, understanding who we are. And he continues here in verse 15, then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. And again, there it doesn't say anything about being part of the right family or social setting or, or a set of circumstances as condition to sin. It is what's going on inside of us. And when we uh, we latch onto something that we desire so strongly, that's what the progression is going to be to sin. Um, we, we have to think or maybe understand a little bit about the connection between lust and desire. Um, again, desire in and of itself is not bad. I have a desire for sleep. <laughs> I have a desire for food, right? Uh, every once in a while, I have a desire to take a shower. <laughs> uh, those things are not bad, right? Um, but when those things take us over, right, those desires, natural desires, when they take us over, that now becomes lust. And what's happening there is our desire for that thing 
is exceeding our desire for God. And we need to know that. We need to know that that is what is happening. Um, uh, so, so lust is the point where the desire for the thing becomes more than our desire for God. And again, those things could be, um, in our opinion, could be relatively um, unimposing. Uh, again, the desire for food. It seems like just such a nonchalant thing. Or the desire to have some time to relax. Maybe you've had a, a, a really busy day, right? Or whatever the case may be. And you have a desire to go home and to spend a half hour relaxing. And then you get home and all chaos is broken loose. <laughs> and you're the one that has to resolve that chaos that's broken loose. And you just, you fly into a fit of rage because you can't have your allotted 30 minutes of downtime, right? You desired that 30 minutes of downtime so much that God's demand on your life to, um, uh, to have order in the home and to discipline children and all of those things now, um, uh, those God-given responsibilities are uh, not your priority, right? Your relaxation is your priority. And so again, the desire for relaxation is not bad, but when it controls us, that is, that's sinful, right? And, and that's what uh, James is getting at here. Uh, again, obsession with a particular desire places you at the center of the universe. Uh, that's a good thing to be mindful of, right? When we have an obsession for something, when that desire has turned into a lust, that is at the point where we have placed ourselves at the center of the universe and we have pushed God out to the fringe. Uh, he no longer is in his rightful place. I'm the one that's determining what's going on. It's really a transition to it's all about me. I don't care what's going on. This is about me. Uh, and it happens in a very subtle way a lot of times. This isn't always this um, uh, example where somebody comes home and just blows up in anger. Um, it can be very subtle. And so we have to be very careful about that because there are things that we desire that there could be good intentions behind them, but then it gets in the way of our relationship with the Lord or dethroning God, so to speak, and we can dethrone God in subtle ways. Um, one of the things that may help is, is this thing here. It's kind of this downward spiral. Uh, there's a desire, then there's deception, then there's design, and there's disobedience. And this is kind of what I think Bob Badoe brought up last time with regard to we're having a discussion about desire and how some of those things possibly can be sinful. And again, the initial desire is not necessarily sinful. It's when that starts to consume us, then that really becomes this lust that we are chasing after that is controlling us. So again, desire, uh, spiritual and moral, uh, it's spiritually or morally neutral. Uh, I got a typo there. Uh, begins as an emotion, a feeling, or a longing for something. And again, that's not necessarily bad. Uh, again, morally neutral. And I think that's the key there that, with the desire. Um, it's, it's not morally neutral if I think, you know, I, my family, uh, if, if we had a little bit more money, 
we could afford a uh, pontoon boat. And <laughs> I knew that was going to be the response. Um, and so we could get the pontoon boat, right? Um, that's not a bad desire. Maybe I'll maybe I'll get a part-time job. Um, you know, kids are not in the home anymore, um, and so maybe I can afford some time without neglecting Nancy to to get this extra job and make some cash to get this boat. Um, and I think you know what? Uh, I really don't want to work that much. But if I go swindle uh, some some money out of somebody. <laughs> Right, that's not morally neutral. It's no longer morally neutral. It's morally negative, and so I've got to be careful with uh, how I uh, classify the desire. Right, uh, but that's the first part. Uh, there's a, something uh, that's spiritually and morally neutral, and it's something that I think would be a, a good thing. Uh, but the second part is the deception. Uh, now I'm starting to rationalize or justify getting it. I know I don't have the money to buy this thing, and I am finagling every kind of ungodly way there is to get it. Uh, now I'm starting to be deceptive in what's going on. The, the next part would be the design. This is how I'm going to do it. And this is the part where we've got to really be careful in our own hearts and our minds in the sense that uh, you can maybe say it's somewhat more simply in the sense that um, when we think about desire, uh, it becomes ungodly when it gets to the point that we will either sin to get it or we will sin if we can't have it. Either one, right? There's something I want, I'm going to sin to get it, or I'm going to sin if I can't have it. We know at that point that thing is controlling us, right? Um, so, yeah, we get to the design, planning on how we're going to go about getting it, and then the disobedience is really just carrying through on the plan. That, that's our action. That's what we're going to do. Um, I'm done thinking about it. I want it. I'm going to have it. This is going to happen. I've already planned on how it's going to happen. And uh, everything is in place. I just need to act on it. And I act on it. So that's what we have to think about. And again, you can think about that in, in the terms of hunting. We talked about that before. That the desire becomes so strong that an animal disregards the warning. As we're going through that process, and it can be quick, um, there's all these warnings that go off in our head or in our heart. Don't do it. Don't go there. That's a bad idea. Uh, you're, you're thinking about this to get this thing, and it's not a godly thing to do that. And you just push all those things uh, aside. All of those warnings are just thrown, um, thrown aside. But this is where... So when he says, then when lust has conceived, this is where James introduces this imagery of pregnancy, right? When lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. This is really, I mean, to me, it's, um, <laughs> well, let me ask you, what, what do you find striking about what he says there in verse 15 or is there anything striking in verse 15 that you see? Yeah, what is what is pregnancy typically result in? Yeah, life. Yeah, life. And James is saying just the opposite here with regard to sin. It's bringing forth death, right? This kind of gets back to what Gary was talking about before. What he's talking about here 
this physical death. He's not, he's not saying that this results in your losing your salvation. Uh, he's not saying that uh, um, um, somehow you never were a believer, those kinds of things. We know that people get caught in sin, certain sins, and uh, for some people where there is no repentance uh, or resistance to repentance, uh, resistance to the prompting of the Holy Spirit, uh, there can come a point that um, that the Lord has had enough and that person is taken home. And I think you see that uh, certainly in Matthew 18, uh, verses uh, 15 and follow. Uh, I should, in verses 10 to 14 there, where he's mentioning the story of the, the straying sheep, uh, where he says, it's not the will of uh, your father who is in heaven for one of these little ones to perish. Uh, the idea there is physical death. Um, uh, it's not the loss of salvation. A lot of people take that section of scripture to mean that, and I don't. And then I would say the same thing about the end of 1 John 5, where there's a sin that leads to death, um, and there is a sin not leading to death. Uh, some people, they get caught up in certain sins um, that just will not repent and, and really become a... Uh, um, I guess a black mark against the name of Christ. I do believe there are times when they are just taken home. And so uh, James is wanting the Christian to understand that. That's how serious sin is. Uh, that's why I say over and over again that sin is not to be toyed around with. It is a serious matter. And so again, he's just using this, um, this uh, kind of language of, of pregnancy, right? Of the conceive there to take together to close in the hands uh, to seize in terms of pregnancy it has to do with uh, implanting right uh, uh, when the egg is fertilized and implants right and starts to grow and that's the idea that he is getting at here uh, sin is just anything that's contrary to God's word or will it's unrighteous behavior I mean that's a that uh, first John five seventeen all unrighteousness is sin. Uh, anything that's not righteous is sinful. Uh, accomplished there just means to be complete, matured, or perfected. And death there, as I mentioned, is uh, the end of life. It's not not spiritual, not spiritual death. Uh, so again, we and we mentioned this. The contrast there, uh, the birth of sin and death. Um, you know, it's not. It's about death. It's not about life. So, uh, again, here are some examples of lust conceiving and giving birth to sin. Uh, some, well, I was going to mention before I get into this, uh, Gary was talking about learning typing uh, when he was uh, in high school. Do you want to share with these younger people what that entailed? <laughs> well, I, we probably need a picture because they won't even believe it, right? Yeah, they won't know what a typewriter looks like. line it up sure until they came up with correction tape and then that worked a little bit so yeah had to return the carriage right just didn't go to all the young kids are going that's right yeah yeah i had to replace the ribbon so you could type some more so <laughs> anyway sue <laughs> so, oh yeah 
anyway, here, here's some, uh, some, some of you are probably too young to remember this too, but here's some, um, some examples of lust conceiving and giving birth to sin. Uh, how many people remember the uh, Cabbage Patch Doll uh, craze? Where was the where was the lust resulting in sin there? Yeah, wanted to collect them all, right? People had to have, and again, now the desire to have a Cabbage Patch Doll is not sinful. Uh, when it gets to the point where you're willing to go in a store and beat somebody up so you can have one, it's now that's sinful, right? Right. I mean, we see that now with various things, um, video games or whatever. Uh, people will walk into a, a Walmart. Uh, Christmas time is a great time to see this, right? You see these uh, Walmart has specials on TVs. You can get a, you know, whatever, 100 and some inch TV for $200. But the, you, only the first 20 people in the door get one, right? And so this massive mob is lined up to get one. And the person's getting ready to grab the last box on the display, and somebody comes and basically body checks them to get that TV, right? That's when a desire has turned into a, a sin. Oh, right. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah, that really, it really is. I, I already mentioned, you know, before the seminary degree. Um, that happens. I still remember uh, a professor I had talked about that, how he's seen that over and over again, where somebody uh, truly believes that they have to go to seminary and they take their wife uh, and children there and, and the wife is kicking and screaming the whole way. And, and throughout the three or four years that they're there, she becomes very embittered against him for dragging uh, them to seminary and all the difficulties that that entails and at the end of that three or four years and this person has finished their last course and they now are uh, planning their graduation ceremony and the person that graduated walks across the stage um, the president ha hands them their diploma and gives them a handshake they get on the other side they walk down the steps off the stage and there's their wife with divorce papers their ministry is done, right? And so again, there's something like that, that getting a degree like that is not sinful or the desire to have one is not sinful. But when you go about it in ungodly ways, then it is sinful, right? So the desire in and of itself is not bad, but the way we carry it out, we let that thing control us. And that is not good. So you think about, and I'm sure you guys can come up with uh, all kinds of um uh, other examples um, to, to think about with regard to how that happens where lust uh, conceives and, and gives birth to sin. And so we want to think about that in our own lives when we sin. What has happened there? We want to evaluate what has happened there. Again, how do we fight against all this? Um, Romans 12, 1 and 2, Psalm 119, 9 to 11. Um, certain things, church attendance, church membership, uh, church service, service within the body of Christ, uh, actively applying the Word of God, all of those things are things that we can think about in battling sin. Uh, I would mention this as far as fighting against sin, fighting against lust. Um, it comes with having, having God honoring friends. I can't tell you how many times I counsel people and I ask them, and I've shared this with you guys before, List me, list your five closest friends. And they list five. 
Sadly, I have some people that will sit there and they can't come up with one. They, they don't have one close friend. But most of the time I get, they'll list five. And then I say, okay, tell me, out of those five people, um, tell me about the ones that are Christians in their walk with the Lord. And the typical response is laughter. And I say, what's so funny? Oh, they're not Christians. But they're your closest friends. Yeah. Right? We are not fostering the battle against sin when our closest friends are enemies of God. Now, we may think they're nice people, but if they're not believers, they're enemies of God. That's, that's fact. That's just the way it is. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15.33, bad company corrupts good morals. And you can try as hard as you want to justify having those friends. You can talk to me until you're blue in the face. <laughs> and I'm going to tell you the same thing. Bad idea. Bad idea. And that's not, your argument's not with me. Your argument is with, with the Lord. So that's, those are different ways that we can battle um, uh, sin to make sure that our desires don't turn into lust and then conceive and give birth to sin. So uh, that's where we'll end today. Did I ever answer your question, Gary? I think I, think I did. But, um, we'll end today. We'll finish the last point about understanding who God is um, uh, next time. Oh, I guess we got two things to go. Anyway, we'll finish. We'll try to finish them next time. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for our time this morning, and uh, thank you for the the great questions, um, the great comments uh, as we went through the session this morning. Uh, pray for all of us that we continue to think uh, heavily on what James is writing here. It's very challenging, uh, but we know that if we're believers, you've given us the Holy Spirit. And the promise is to move us in the right direction and to help us all to be mindful of uh, what we see in, uh, in Romans 8, 13. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Uh, that is a great, a great verse with regard to the Holy Spirit and the work in our life. And may we rejoice in that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for taking the time to listen and learn with us. We hope that next time you'll join us in person. We meet every Sunday morning at 8.30 and 10 a.m. In addition to our traditional worship service, we also offer Sunday school classes for children and adults, as well as child care services in our staffed nursery. For more information about Bethel Baptist Church, please visit our website.